you're going to have to indulge me just a little bit because I'm going to go over so much that you all already know, but it really is setting the stage so much. I want to talk just so briefly about what is the National Park Service and why we have Fort Monroe and a little bit about what is special about Fort Monroe. So as of this day, today, because of actions that have happened earlier this month, literally this month, we now have 401 units in the National Park System. They serve almost 300 million people a year. And the diversity of these parks that are now in all 50 states and in Puerto Rico and Guam and Saipan and all of the territories of the United States, they tell the diverse story of who we are as a nation. Sometimes our, our glowing moments, sometimes our difficult times, and often some of our most spectacular scenery and awesome recreational opportunities. So whether you're going to a battlefield that's going to think about how this country came to be, or you're learning about a person that helped to shape who we are as a nation, these are what our national parks are for. They tell who we are as a nation. Our good, bad, ugly, beautiful, it's all kind of there. So why Fort Monroe? What's the sense of place about Fort Monroe and why do we matter so much? Like Mr. Guy was saying, over 400 years ago, we had human habitation, people using this area known as, to us today, Old Point Comfort, the peninsula that's there. And he mentioned Captain John Smith who came through in 1607. And even Captain John Smith looked at that and he said, you know, this is an incredible space. We can set up a fort here and two years later there you go Fort Algernon was born. Now successions of forts happened along the way. We ended up getting Fort uh, Algernon burned down in the midst of all of that. Let me just point out 1619 because here's where the arc of history gets just incredible. A ship flying a Dutch flag came into what we understand today as Old Point Comfort. And in the records of John Rolfe, who was the secretary of the Virginia Company, he wrote, 20 and odd Africans were brought to Point Comfort. Now we're not 100% sure of what the title of those Africans were, the disposition of those Africans, but arose by any other name, they were enslaved. And they were brought here against their will. And this was what we know today as Fort Monroe. Fort Monroe wasn't built until later and it's partly because you'll notice that first lighthouse in 1802 was built. Still active today, by the way, as a navigational aid. Come out last night, the gorgeous sunset, and then all of a sudden that red glow of the lighthouse. That's still being a beacon to our sailors today coming home from war. Well, that lighthouse was taken over by the British in 1814. And about that time, our congressional delegation said, geez, maybe the cost of that fort down there at that little spit of land isn't so much. And we got a fortification all along the coastlines. And this system of fortifications, this coastal defense line, started, as Mr. Guy said, with Fortress Monroe and what we know today as Fort Wool, but it started out as Castle Calhoun. There was this guy, he was a lieutenant, fresh out of the academy. You might know him as Mr. Robert E. Lee. 
he was then Lieutenant Lee, with his new wife, Mary, lived in what is now uh, where we have our headquarters for the National Park, just across from the Casemate Museum. And he helped to construct what you see today at Fort Monroe, that beautiful stone fort in between 1831 and 1834. And then the Civil War happened. And let me just indulge with a couple of stories about this time period. I know you guys probably know most of this stuff. But so many people I have found don't actually know the story of Fort Monroe and the key role that it's played in our nation's history. And not just a defense of coastal line history. May, end of May, 1861. Three men likely took their lives into their hands to cross treacherous waters in a rowboat that they had stolen to get away from their enslaving masters. They were working on the Confederate lines. They knew about this Union fort called Fortress Monroe. And they thought, as far as we understand, that if they could just get there, maybe somebody would take pity on them. Now think about your second day of work. You know, you're still figuring out where your pencils are and how to adjust that pneumatic chair you got. On his second day of work, General Butler had three men show up on his doorstep. And they said that they wanted asylum. They wanted freedom. Now Butler, he was a little bit of a problem, shall we say, for the Union side. See, he was, oh, hold on a second. Anybody a lawyer here? <laughs> uh, Mark, you don't count? <laughs> okay, so he was a lawyer. Now, lawyers are awesome. They also know how to get themselves and others around them into trouble. And that's what Butler did. He got, as far as I think the presidency and the War Department was concerned, them in a bit of trouble. Because he put on his thinking cap and he said, well, let me interview you men and let me find out a little bit about what was going on. And in doing so, he learned that they were doing trenches and all kinds of things for the Confederates just across the way. Oh, geez, here in Norfolk and Virginia Beach area. Hmm. So the next day, when a Confederate officer came over to retrieve his property, he was asked, he asked Butler's rather, well, what are your intentions? And Butler said, I'm not going to return these men to you. And he said, but you have to. It's the Fugitive Slave Act. Oh, no problem. I didn't realize that you were pledging to the United States of America. Um, I was under the impression Virginia has succeeded. So just come down off the horse, pledge allegiance to the flag, and they're yours. Well, the major did that? No, I don't think the major did that. So the major said, well, I'm going to do that. So he said, they're our property. You have to return our property. But remember, Butler had interviewed them and knew that they had been working for the Confederate side. So in his mind, they were like cannon, they were like food. They were property, so the South said. And for the Confederates who decided that these were property, Butler decided to say, well, then they're contraband, and he didn't return them. And thus came the contraband decision, and thus came the change for many thousands of enslaved people to see Fort Monroe as not necessarily Fortress Monroe, but freedom's fortress. 
And we are undergoing some scholastic exercises to be able to say this with all certainty, but we understand that that decision had a lot to do with pushing President Lincoln forward with the Emancipation Proclamation and eventually with the 13th Amendment. So amazing stuff happened right at Fort Monroe when you think back to 1619. Um, you've probably heard this before, the idea that in some ways in the British colonies, the birth of slavery started at Fort Monroe and I would say the beginning of the end of slavery in the United States started at Fort Monroe as well. President Lincoln, like I said, was also at Fort Monroe and all oh, this Norfolk Historical Society. I'm not gonna tell you about what Lincoln did in Norfolk. You guys know that. Um, but come to the Casemate Museum and you can see the casemate, the cell that Jefferson was kept in. Um, Confederate President uh, Jefferson Davis, excuse me, was kept in for about four months or so during his nearly two-month incarceration at Fort Monroe. So after that point in 67, then we're all the way up into 1907, and not only was Fort Monroe continuing to play a role of coastal defense for the United States, but it also played a role all the way through World War II really as a training school. And you can see that it was recognized early on for its incredible history because in 1960, it was recognized as a National Historic Landmark. So nearly the entire peninsula has been part of the codex of the National Park Service since 1960. We are the keepers of the National Historic Landmarks and Landmark Districts. And so the Army Training and Doctrine Command, as we know, uh, BRAC came along and identified the area known as Fort Monroe and the peninsula of Old Point Comfort for closure in 2005. And by golly, we already heard about the grassroots. I suspect um, many, in fact, I recognize quite a few faces, uh, were part of that grassroots effort to, to preserve Fort Monroe. And uh, the programmatic agreement, by the way, was just there partly because of the National Historic Landmark designation back in 1960. I want to point out that it's Governor McDonald in the letter that he wrote to Secretary Salazar in September of 2011 that gave basically the power of the pen to the president so that with all of the great history of Fort Monroe, on November 1st of 2011, he could for the first time in his presidency use the 1906 Antiquities Act to say, yes, we have federal ownership after the land reverts to the Commonwealth of Virginia, and I can declare that there will be federal lands that can be made into a national monument. So what's the purpose of the monument? There are really three things that were laid out in the presidential proclamation, and they make sense. We already know the history is there, but was also recognized in the presidential office was the natural history that was there and the recreational opportunities both the land-based and the water-based opportunities that are there, as well as the need for us to make sure that the stories of Fort Monroe continue to be told, and in fact, be shared more and more than they ever have before. So how do you take something that's got hundreds of years of history and turn it into a national park? Well, if you're really smart, you don't try and do it by yourself and you do it through a collaborative planning process. And while the City of Hampton, the Fort Monroe Authority, and the National Park Service all have really different ways of doing planning, 
it behooves us to really net our efforts together so that when our efforts come together, they're greater. It's the Gestaltian idea, you know, that all these pieces coming together are stronger. And so you'll hear a little bit more specifically from uh, Director Oder. He is going to talk about the planning that's been going on with the master plan for Fort Monroe Authority because I think a lot of that has to do with the, on the ground what you're seeing on a day-to-day -day level out there as well. So this is what the map currently looks like, uh, what was proposed for the national park boundary. I just want to pick out two things for you. Um, you'll recognize the brown area up top here is the North Beach and the brown areas down here. That's all called Park Service ownership. That's the areas, uh, much of that, that the governor said in his letter would come to the National Park Service. And that's ownership. We have responsibility for it. We'll have it in full ownership. The other green line that's out here is also the boundary of the park, but that is an easement. And through a generous offer from the governor, he said you'll have the ability to take tour groups in the area, to help us financially with the space, and it'll be part of the National Park but you're not going to have the ownership of it, so you don't have the burden. So the burden is actually still on the Commonwealth of Virginia while we get to take advantage of it being part of the national park as well. So Fort Monroe, though it was closed as an active military post in 2011, it's been born back to be a public place of learning and recreating. I like to also think that it'll be an area of commerce and community as well. It's been an anchor for this community for so many years. Now it really is an anchor for the nation as part of the national park system. I have to tell you, uh, my wife and I have a better, greater than 20 years of public service and every job I've ever had has given me more and more opportunities to represent the public. I have to tell you that never in my wildest dreams that I ever imagined I'd be elected to be a member of the Virginia General Assembly. Um, and I thought that was the greatest job I ever had in my entire life, other than being, uh, you know, a husband and a father and all that good stuff. Um, and then I got this job at Fort Monroe. And I have to tell you, this job has gone almost to a different level. I really don't know any other way to describe it to say that it is virtually a spiritual journey to be on and be part of this great property. You heard some of the wonderful history that uh, the superintendent gave you, and I have to tell you what a wonderful presentation and what a delight it is to work with the National Park Service. We really did get a wonderful superintendent and she's become a great partner in this effort as we share this property and we try to oversee the management of it. But as, as you think of this property, many people have said to me all types of things of what does the property mean to them and so forth, but uh, I love the logo that we've come up with and I left it up here on the screen for just a moment. You know, we've tried, we couldn't find one iconic figure that actually represented the entire meaning of what Fort Monroe what the property means to people. So we came up with this, we grabbed several iconic logos and we call it where people you know, live, work, play, and learn uh, at Fort Monroe. We also now have two churches at Fort Monroe that are still active. So you could also say we worship at Fort Monroe. We have restaurants at Fort Monroe. You can say we eat at Fort Monroe as well. But we're very excited about what this logo means and I'm really excited about the brand, where freedom lives. Uh, there's no greater thing to describe Fort Monroe than the story of freedom. And so that's what we love so much about Fort Monroe. Um, this is a, uh, I, what I wanted to do, instead of talking about the, so much of the history of the fort, I really wanted to focus more on where we are in terms of um, the master plan process. And so this is, a, this is an aerial view of the master plan that I wanted to, to show you today. 
Um, it's very interesting. We've color-coded it a little bit. You can see the dark green area up here, if you were to draw the line across here and go all the way up, this is probably about 200 acres of green uh, space right here. There's a couple of buildings in here. One, one restaurant is located right there that's in this area here. This, of course, is what uh, Superintendent Talkin Spalding mentioned when she was talking about the National Monument. Then, for whatever reason, skips over all this property, actually skips over the fort, comes inside the fort right here, and you can see the parade grounds right there is now part of the National Monument. And then Old Quarters One, which is where uh, General Butler, uh, when he was at Fort Monroe, General Butler lived there. Um, President Lincoln also stayed there when he was there. It's my office. Uh, at least three great Americans have now worked in that, in that office building. And then uh, just two doors down from that, there's another building there, officer's quarters, that the National Park Service took as well. And then they skipped over this land right here and they took ownership, as, uh, as the superintendent said, of another building that is right there. Um, and that is the, uh, that's where Robert E. Lee lived in, when he was at Fort Monroe. It's interesting because we do share, you know, an e we share an easement. We, the Commonwealth of Virginia, will now share an easement with the National Park Service that goes over this area right here. We're not really exactly sure all the things that are going to be in the easement, but it's a cooperative easement where we cooperate on what can happen in the property and so forth. But it's important for those of you to know that things like the Casemate Museum that are still there, um, just to give you an idea of the partnership that we're working on with the National Park Service, uh, the Casemate Museum is still fully funded at this time you know, by the Commonwealth of Virginia. The, the property is transferring from the Army over to the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Commonwealth of Virginia is now working on a long-term loan agreement with the Army so that the Army will leave their artifacts there. A very difficult negotiations. The Army doesn't leave their artifacts behind. But the Army has been very strategic and they've identified objects that really only make contextual sense to be located in the Casemate Museum. Things like Jefferson Davis's flag, the flag of the United States that hung in Jefferson Davis's cell. Jefferson Davis's cell is there. He had to look at that flag every day. We actually have the actual flag that hung in Jefferson Davis's cell. It's there right now. We need to get the Army to leave that there. So we, the Commonwealth of Virginia, you and the audience right here, we've got to fund this museum so that we can continue to have those artifacts here. We have to staff that museum. We are hiring new staff to take over from the Army. So as this transition takes place, we take over that. One of the exciting things we're looking at is one of the possibilities to actually create the National Park Service Welcome Center. What is, it's an idea, but what if we could find a way to, to create uh, the National Park Service Welcome Center actually in the Casemate Museum. Imagine then that when you're out here on the interstate uh, over here, it's off the screen, but over here on the interstate, the, the National Park Service signs that would direct you to the National Monument. And then you would come through, through Phoebus across the bridge here into the fort, into the, onto the property, into the fortress and be brought right to the Casemate Museum. Imagine using that type of marketing to drive 100,000 people to the Casemate Museum and what we could then tell, the stories that we could tell then about Fort Monroe in that museum. The other thing that I want you to know when we talk about Fort Monroe is the we see the entire property as being the people's property and the entire property as being a museum. You don't have to live in Hampton Roads very long to want to go to the water and realize just how difficult it is to go and find a place to go to the water and when you get there for how difficult it is to find a place to park. Uh, you fly over Hampton Roads and you think everybody ought to have a piece of the water and then you realize that they, they do, I just don't. Uh, it's the people that live on the water that get to use the water. Well, we have the chance to do something right 
in Fort Monroe. As we start working on the master plan at Fort Monroe, one of the things that we really wanted to find is the green space. So imagine taking the green space here at Continental Park along the Chesapeake Bay and starting to link all this green area together right here, all the way down to our beautiful beaches that were built with the uh, water improvements that were done after Hurricane Isabel. And link that over here and for the first time create a green link that comes from the Chesapeake Bay all the way over here to Mill Creek. And then imagine, see this purple line right here? Imagine making a trail that goes all the way around the property. By the time you get done, this would be a seven mile waterfront trail in the heart of Hampton Roads. I don't know of any place else that I've ever been where I could walk seven miles along the waterfront and end back up where I started and only cross a road in two places, right there and maybe right there unless we can go around the cul-de-sac that's up at that end of the property. What an exciting gift that Fort Monroe can give back to the community. This ability to go there and walk this trail I have to tell you, we've also explored, and I know it's possible to create uh, an app that people can download on their iPhone so as that they walk along and so as you pass a battery like such as here, or as you're up here where the osprey nest, or you're here, here maybe where the migratory birds uh, roost. Imagine having an app that everywhere you walk along it buzzes or beeps and tells you, listen to me, I want to tell you about Fort Monroe. I want to tell you about the great history of Fort Monroe. We're very, very excited about this. I have lots of slides to go through. I'm going to have to go very quickly. In a few weeks, I'll be giving this presentation again, and I'll be adding a thing to you that causes me great concern. And that is that the Army has decided that not all the property reverts to the Commonwealth of Virginia. In particular, they're focused here on the marina, and they don't believe that the marina reverts to the Commonwealth of Virginia. But in worse than that, I'm going to have to draw a line that goes up into here and encompasses these trees and goes almost all the way over to Fenwick Road, goes through, our, goes through several buildings, some really significant buildings like the Post Theater. The Army believes that those buildings in this property does not convert to the Commonwealth of Virginia. The Army also believes that this area over here in Northgate, which is all filled material, it doesn't revert to the Commonwealth of Virginia either. These properties were filled, they were filled uh, by the Army under separate deeds after the, eight, after the deed that was done in the early 1800s for the conversion of Fort Monroe. These deeds were done later. Um, it's arguable as to whether they included the reversion clause or not. I have to tell you that our master plan process and the efforts that we're going to as we represent all the citizens about the way Fort Monroe should look as we go into the future, future did not contemplate that there would be multiple property owners developing property at Fort Monroe without a single master plan as the guiding light. And I have to tell you, you'll see a slide towards the end where you'll see how difficult it's going to be to, to accomplish what the Army wants to try and accomplish. You know, Fort Monroe has been a period, has, has been a piece of property that's gone under magnificent pieces of development throughout time. This is Mill Creek that actually used to come all the way up here to uh, Fenwick Road and right over here all the way up to the fortress. And that was in the 1830s, that picture was taken in the mid-1830s. Several years later, you can see the amount of fill that was brought in here. Inside of all of this has been utilities uh, and other things that have been done, including artifacts. We recently, right here off the corner, when we were doing some uh, removal of some uh, dilapidated apartment buildings, we actually found, we actually found a battery uh, that had not been recorded before, and so we've been doing research on that. But all of this shows you that Fort Monroe has been evolving over time, but it was never intended to be anything but one piece of property, and that's what makes it so challenging. What do we have at Fort Monroe? 176 homes. Uh, again, this will have to change because some of the homes 
uh, that we intend to protect and that we are putting deed restrictions on and we intend to find people to uh, help us occupy those homes and preserve them, uh, that number will go down because some of those homes are in the properties that I showed you earlier. Uh, we have leased 130 of the homes. I am shocked at how well we've done with our leasing, but it shows you how great everybody feels about Fort Monroe and how much they want to be there. Commercially, our success uh, is growing every day with the commercial interests that we have in Fort Monroe. Um, we have an ocean club uh, that is formed in the old officers club. Uh, they, they do take memberships, but they also have day passes. It's a great place to go and visit the beach. Uh, people go there by boat, they go there by car, they go there by bike, they walk. Uh, the Virginia State Police had moved out there. Of course, we were worried when all the MPs left as to what would we have in terms of security at Fort Monroe. How exciting to know that both the Virginia State Police and the Hampton Police Department have all moved out to Fort Monroe and are now occupying buildings at Fort Monroe. The Virginia Department of Fire Programs is out there. The Freedom Support Center is an exciting program of Governor McDonald's wife. She came up with the idea that we should find a way to get all of our military organizations, Operation Homefront, Wounded Warrior, uh, the National Guard Service, uh, Family Counseling Services, to all be in one building so that a, a soldier or their family uh, could actually go to one place to get services. This is a multi-tenant building and the Freedom Support Center occupies the first floor of that. Part of the upstairs is occupied by Q Design, which is a local architecture firm that moved out to Fort Monroe. So as you can see, we're very, very excited about the progress we're making. Um, we anticipated we could rent 20,000 square feet a year. We've already rented 91,000 square feet at Fort Monroe. We've had many successful events at Fort Monroe. Uh, last year, if you were to add up all of these events with our concerts and people going to the beaches and so forth by physical count, because we actually had our lifeguards count people, at the end of the day, we had 65,000 people came to events that we put on at Fort Monroe last year. We're very excited about the success that we've had. Uh, the Virginia Symphony concert that came out there last year actually um, brought about 3,000 people. We're hoping that we can get four or 5,000 people this year. We're thrilled with the, with the public programs we've done. They're all free, all open to the public, and they're done for with donations from people like yourselves. They're not paid for with state taxpayer dollars. The FMA is working uh, with the Army, or at least uh, we have been uh, working with the Army on the transfer of the, of the property. Uh, this is something that was anticipated for some time. Um, we did not realize, or at least, uh, that it was going to be quite as difficult and controversial uh, as it has become. Fort Monroe is very unique in that there is a reverter clause in this. If this was just a standard army base, they simply would be putting this up for sale, uh, selling it at various parts and so forth to it. Because it reverts back to yourselves, um, it's a bit more challenging as to how this all works. Again, you'll see in a minute how this, how, what I mean by that. This is a map that I colored in to help show you. This, of course, is the marina area over here. That was that white area in the master plan that I showed you. This is a map that we've been working on with the Army since 2009. This is the kidney-shaped area that is between the fortress over here and uh, Mill Creek. This is uh, uh, what the land that the Army believed that did not, did not revert. We were negotiating with them over this land and what the value was when suddenly we found out that, see this yellow area right here? The Army has decided that this yellow area is actually part of this right here, and so the property has expanded uh, by 15 acres of uplands, which greatly influences the value of the property. This is, uh, came quite a surprise to us. Uh, this map actually goes back to 1908, and so it's, uh, it's a difficult issue to try and figure out 
uh, which of these is the correct ones and where did it come from. Just to give you an idea of why this is so difficult, uh, this, is, uh, this is a uh, picture of a, of a map that is just one single piece. And as you look at that map and you see what in the world is this spider web of things that are on here, all these lines, what are these lines? They are all the underground utilities that are at Fort Monroe. And so when I try to explain to people that Fort Monroe was never designed to be a, uh, a multi-owned property uh, by, by the way that it is being proposed today, you begin to realize how difficult it is. Uh, these utility lines go in and out of what the Army believes is their property and what the Commonwealth of Virginia believes is their property. Uh, they do not follow right-of-ways. Uh, they're not in easements. In fact, they are not owned by things like the Newport News Waterworks. They're not owned by the Hampton Road Sanitation District Commission. They are all owned by the Army. And they will all convert over to the Commonwealth of Virginia. So you, ladies and gentlemen, are getting ready to own all of those utilities. And what, what, to help explain what I mean by that, you can see all these buildings right here, and you can imagine, my goodness, Glenn, how many water meters do you have on this piece of property? It's very simple to answer. We only have one water meter. And we only have one gas meter, one electric meter. We have, we have 14 sewer pump stations. Some of them are on our property, some of them are not. But the utilities, you can see, create a, a nightmare of trying to unravel who would own what if the water line broke on somebody's property, who's responsible for it. As I close, I will tell you, though, that we have, in spite of all this, the success that we've had at Fort Monroe is phenomenal. Getting a piece of property that we still don't even control yet, um, to imagine that we could get 65 to 100,000 people to come out to Fort Monroe, to imagine that we could lease 130 historic homes and have people now in those homes helping to take care of those homes, to imagine that we could actually have buildings out at Fort Monroe that people like the Virginia State Police were moving into, what a great opportunity for Fort Monroe to come back to life. The idea of creating a seven-mile trail along the waterfront is a gift to all of Hampton Roads, if not all of Virginia, anybody who wants to visit. What an exciting opportunity. What a, what a gold mine, the Casemate Museum, and to be able to keep those Army artifacts there and help tell the Army story as well as the other great history there at Fort Monroe. Very excited. A lot of this happens through the Fort Monroe Foundation. So those of you who want to be part of this, would like to associate your name and your finances uh, with our foundation, please, please uh, see us, stay in touch with us. We would love to make you, uh, help you be part of that. He accurately described the, the origins of the Citizens for Fort Monroe National Park, which is a advocacy nonprofit organization. And we have been, as Lewis said, working on this for seven and a half years. And uh, I will first say we have indeed come a long way uh, the original plan that we started hearing about at Kikatan High School was for a massive real estate development project submerging Fort Monroe in a sea of homes and businesses. And um, as many as 2,500 houses would have been built in the area around Fort Monroe. And we're obviously not talking about anything like that today. And uh, by and large, our group is pleased with how things are developed, with one significant critique that I'll get into as we go through this. But our group coalesced around the idea that Fort Monroe is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the region and the Commonwealth and the nation just to look at it 
here on the shores of the Chesapeake Bay, right in the center of a metropolitan area of 1.7 million people, uh, preserved largely by the Army uh, uh, since the 19th century, and then largely reverting to Virginia. It was really, it could go a lot of different directions, but one way it could go is to greatness for the region. We early on coalesced around the idea that the United States had to be a player at Fort Monroe if we were going to have the wherewithal to maximize Fort Monroe's potential. And we worked very hard to focus decision makers' attention on getting the National Park Service here to Fort Monroe. Uh, Glenn is exactly correct that, and Kirsten, that without the uh, support of the governor and the General Assembly, that a national park could not come to Fort Monroe because the land was reverting to the state. And the governor's letter of 2011 is a fundamental building block to the national monument that we have now. By the way, that picture is, is I like this picture better than the other one because it shows Glenn and me over there on the left. And uh, I, Glenn must know something about going to the Oval Office because when uh, we were standing out in the outer room, uh, I, my name was called first to come into the Oval Office, and Glenn saw that I was surprised, and he said, don't get a big head about this. The person who's first is not, that's not the high status position. And I found out he was correct because the uh, senators and the uh, Secretary of the Interior wanted to be sixth or seventh, so they would be standing right behind the president. Glenn and I were sort of over to the side there. The National Park Service is, in recent years has taken a lot of... Uh, uh, criticism as being underfunded and uh, uh, poorly maintained. But the National Park Service, wherever it is, is a great economic engine. And these numbers you ought to take aboard. There were 279 visitors, million visitors to our national parks in 2011. They brought $13 billion in local economies and created 252,000 jobs. So a national park in the middle of Hampton Roads is great for the economy. I would also note that despite all the polarization in politics right now, a recent uh, poll done by the National Parks Conservation Association showed that the National Park Service is supported by over 90% of Democrats and over 90% of Republicans. So you can't beat that. We, we think we, we all should do it. It's not easy. We all ought to be doing the, most, the best we can to maximize potential of this place. And one of the things we focused on is regional, national, and international tourism. And I put this map up here just to show you how centrally located we are to the population of the eastern United States. We are very close even to places like Ohio and, and Georgia compared to a lot of other places. This is a great location for tourism. And Fort Monroe is not only well located, it is very, very unique. And I'm going to compare it to a few other places that we think of as tremendous uh, locations to visit. Um, compactness. I don't think compactness can be overestimated. A comp it, it's 565 acres. And you can park your car or arrive at Fort Monroe, and you, you are there. There's no more transportation needed. You could walk or bicycle or just sort of mosey around and, and see everything. It's history, it's natural lands, it's beaches, the Chesapeake Bay, it's amenities. And that's very value, valued in the, in the tourism industry. We, we have it all. 
we, we, have, we should someday have lodging as well as restaurants. And you can go there and have sort of a one-stop destination where you, where you can have it all recreation and so on. And I'm going to compare it to several other places that are very popular tourist destinations. And I don't mean to demean these other places. I just want to point out the comparison uh, that Fort Monroe offers, not as it is right today, but as it can become. Here's some of our great historic cities on the east coast of the United States. Annapolis, Charleston, Savannah, St. Augustine. They're absolutely beautiful places. They're absolutely tremendous places to visit. But they don't have what Fort Monroe has. They don't bring it all together into one compact location. Annapolis, Charleston do not have natural lands right immediately at hand for you to visit from your hotel or your bed and breakfast. They do not have beaches you can walk to. They do not provide the serenity that a grand open space right next to an amenity can provide. Acadia National Park has to be one of the great places in the east coast of the United States. Bar Harbor is a beautiful little town right next to Acadia National Park. But you do not just walk from, you can hike out of Bar Harbor into the park, but you need a car or some sort of transportation to appreciate Acadia National Park, even from your beautiful historic hotel in Bar Harbor. Not so at Fort Monroe. It's all there for you just by walking, if we do it right. Cape Cod in, in Massachusetts, one of the great tourism destinations. Beautiful place, tremendous beaches, tremendous some beautiful natural lands and some history. But it's, it's not a place you go and just stay there and do, the, do something without your car where everything is immediate, immediately at hand. And it doesn't have the grand architecture of Fort Monroe. And our, closer at hand, Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown, the historic triangle. Tremendous places world-class tourist destinations, but it's sort of spread out. You don't have natural lands right that you can appreciate directly from Duke of Gloucester Street like you could from Ingalls Road. It's not as compact. And Fort Monroe has the amenities, not just the natural lands and the history. We have a great theater there with character. Uh, Chautauqua, New York is a is a place that comes a little closer maybe to being like Fort Monroe. You have a lake, some natural lands, and a historic buildings all very close together. And it's quite a place for uh, tourism and conferences and such. And you could easily see Fort Monroe becoming a little like that and better. Beyond the tourism opportunities at Fort Monroe, both local, regional, and national, and international, it could become an economic and quality of life engine for Hampton Roads. As you can see, it's right there in the center of the 1.7 million population area. And we probably could use a little engine right now. Growth in Hampton Roads is stalled by all measures. And this is even before the sequester. And we, are faced, we have an economy largely dominated by military spending. And even if we get past the sequester, Military spending is not going to grow, it's going to decline as the focus of defense turns to the Pacific and as the two wars wind down. So we need to diversify our economy in what better way than through tourism and attracting the new knowledge-based businesses. But we are not, arguably not well situated to, to do that 
attract new businesses because when we compare ourselves to other Bayside cities, the percentage of our land that we've preserved as public open space is pitifully small. We've devoted most of our waterfront, and this is a Trust for Public Land study from two or three years ago. We've devoted most of our waterfront to ports, the military, housing, and commerce. We have developed, devoted almost none of it to public open space as compared to San Francisco where huge portions of the Bay that could have been developed were not by public choice and we create great landscapes like this. Similarly, Boston and New York have preserved a lot of their waterfront as public open space and it pays off. Quality of life is important attracting today's knowledge-based industries. Young people who largely work at these industries want more than their parents' generation in terms of quality of life. And we have to give it to them if we're going to compete. And Fort Monroe well, is not the answer by itself, but a grand Fort Monroe centrally located in, in Hampton Roads can be part of that answer. Here's the one area that we're most concerned about right now in the master plan. This red area is the Wary Quarter and what we call the South Waterfront to the south where Batteries Irwin and Parade are. That is land that is not in the National Monument but lies between the two pieces of the National Monument. What is going to become of this land? The master plan preserves a fair amount of it, but there's a large piece in the northwest corner that is slated for either a business park, that's the left, or a waterfront community. These will no doubt generate some funds to pay the Fort Monroe Authority's costs, but at what price to the potential of Fort Monroe? We think it's an unacceptable price. It creates a barrier between the two pieces of the National Monument that could never be eliminated. It, it prevents the integration of the natural lands right into the fortress so that you will not be able to walk directly from a bed and breakfast or a future hotel in the historic village right out to the open lands and have the kind of recreation that people want today. Yes, there'll be a trail going around the edges, but you'll look into somebody's backyard where his, his car is sitting or his barbecue pit is cooking, and it's not the same at all as having restored natural lands coming right to the ramparts of the fort. And we think this can be done and it should be done. What's the state of our national economy? Everyone thinks we're, we're, we're in a terrible predicament, but actually, there's a lot of people who think the country's about to come into a period of great prosperity. The discovery of recoverable natural gas and oil in the uh, swath of land running from North Dakota down to Texas is going to create unprecedented national wealth in the next 10 to 20 years. This is just a graph showing how much more domestic natural gas dry gas production we will expect to have between now and 2035 and you can see the graph going way up and there's similar graphs for wet natural gas and oil. The fracking process makes oil much more recoverable. National self-sufficiency in fuel is going to result in tremendous revenues and combined with uh, some progress in Washington on dealing with the debt we could be coming into a, a period of great national prosperity and wealth 
where we ought to be able to save 64 more acres at Fort Monroe so that we can have reach its maximum potential. Theodore Roosevelt, in a similar time after oil was discovered at Spindletop in 1901, saved during his administrations 234 million acres of lands, far more than we're even thinking about nationally, much less at Fort Monroe. And if he hadn't done that, what would be America be like? Every generation has its duties and responsibilities. I suggest that our generation here in Hampton Roads needs to finish the job at Fort Monroe, build on what Kirsten and Glenn are accomplishing, save the additional 64 acres, unify the National Monument, and reach our potential at Fort Monroe.